Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by last weekend's Ironman World Championships podium finisher, Braden Curry. Braden went to the front of the race within the first 30 seconds and was in the lead until 15 kilometres to go in the run. That's over six hours out front at the Ironman World Championships. He ended up in one of the greatest battles we've ever seen with Lionel Sanders for second position that came down to the last couple of hundred metres in an eight-hour race. Braden has also won the Ironman Asia Pacific Champs in Cairns and Ironman New Zealand two times each and came fifth in the 2018 Ironman World Championships. Braden, I'm so stoked to have you on the show to chat about last weekend and, and what happened on the day and in the lead up to the, the, the race and, and, and your career in general. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. It's um, yeah, it's great to be on the show, and uh, I do uh, manage to listen in um, in the last few months to a few of your podcasts. Um, obviously, Reedy's a good friend and uh, a great bloke to follow in triathlon world. So I always like uh, catching up and, and hearing what's happening in uh, in your world. Hey, uh, leading into last weekend's race, uh, we what were, where were your expectations at? What kind of shape did you think you you were in? Were you were you going there thinking like I'm here to win this race? Oh, I mean, nah, not really. Um, but I was in really good shape. Uh, I knew that I was really fit, and uh, obviously, coming off a of New Zealand summer um, was going to be an advantage going to a World Champs at this time of year. Um, I'd gone early to a place called Cedar City, which is about 1,800, 2,000 metres altitude um, and only 40 minutes away from the race venue. And I'd had a really good block at altitude um, just pre the race. So, yeah, I knew I had a lot of things in, in my favour. Um, and, yeah, if I, if I raced well, then I was hoping that I could be at the front of the race in the run and, and have a bit of a run battle. Um, I probably didn't see it unfolding the way it did. It probably unfolded better than I thought it could have. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was great to be there. So when uh, when the when the gun went off, was it always your plan to go to the front of the race and, and swim hard for the first sort of five to seven hundred meters? Because you sort of took ownership of the the race at the start of the swim and 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 decided to make it hard for everybody. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've been swimming a lot at altitude and I respond, especially my swim responds really well, uh, to altitude. So I knew that I could push, uh, the envelope quite a lot, uh, in that first sort of K of the swim. And it, it doesn't seem to affect me, um, as much as if I'm coming off sort of non-altitude training. So yeah, I, I jumped to it. Um, I had got a, I got clear and, uh, yeah, and pushed it out, and that was just kind of the hope that, like, the guys of Christian Blumenfeld wouldn't be able to get on our group, and that would kind of split it up. And then when Daniel Backengard went to the front of the swim, he sort of came around you and 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 took the pace up, and and you guys got in a line and, and eventually broke away and and finished, you know, two and a half minutes out of the water ahead of Christian, and and four and a half minutes back to that really uber biking group of Sam Long and Cameron Worth and Lionel Sanders and. Um, Andreas Dreitz and, and guys like that when you're in the swim in the moment do you know that you've got those gaps do you know how big your group is and and do you have like a bit of an idea about how fast you're going and, and the kind of gap you you might have yeah I mean some races you do and some you don't and uh, that one I, I kind of I did um, I got around I obviously I, I got clear at the start and I could see both sides because I was center um, field in a way so yeah, I had a good idea that I was a couple of body lengths clear of everyone else. Um, so that I knew that we were clear of the carnage. And then once I settled into it and back and guard came up beside me, um, I did take a quick look back over the shoulder and, and just sort of checked how many people were in the group, how many people were on the feet and how hard 
I guess I thought I would have to keep swimming and I guess I was prepared to swim up beside Daniel and and take turns uh, on the front but at that point in time I could see that uh, only Kyle Smith and um, yeah there was sort of one or two others and then there was a bit of a sort of four or five meter gap and that's sort of enough that I knew we were getting away so um, yeah I, I settled in and, and took uh, took some feet. And then for the rest of the swim, when you did decide to settle in, was the was the pace still feeling pretty hot or, or did you find it quite comfortable on the day? Uh, I found it really comfortable, yeah. Um, just, yeah, I mean, it is, it's always a little bit easier to slide and stuff when you've got someone in front of you. And, um, yeah, I think there was, it, it, was just, it was a good steady pace and uh, my swimming's definitely come a long way in the last uh, eight years. So, yeah, it wasn't too hard. So when you guys get into T1 with a group of five um, and, and you get out onto the course, is there much conversation about about what's going to happen? Like are you guys, uh, you know, encouraging each other to work and, and talking to each other or does everyone just get out there on their bike and, and go to go to work? Um, I think depending on the race again but and, and the people in the race. And to be honest, uh, no uh, discredit to Alistair Brownlee and what a credible athlete he is is I was actually pretty happy to not have him on the start line because I know he would have been the one that would have disrupted that front group for probably better or worse. And uh, it was actually a really, just a really good group. And um, yeah, a few words were said uh, as we rolled through the first 30K. It was a bit of a, let's keep this smooth, um, you know, let's ride consistent. Um, just kept on trying to set those baselines of, you know, let's not do anything stupid. Um and yeah, the group definitely settled into a really, whoever was on the front um, was setting just a good pace and uh, it just seemed to click and work. And uh, obviously Kyle Smith, who you've already mentioned, was part of that group, a, a fellow New Zealand athlete. Um, and I've been told a, a friend of yours, um, when you guys were in the group together, did you did you two particularly have any words together? Like at any point were you just like, oh, fuck yeah, we're, like, we're at the front of the Ironman World Champs together, Let's let's go. Um, yeah, I mean, he is, he's a really good friend, actually. I, a huge, uh, amount of respect for Kyle. He's, um, he's a really gutsy athlete and he'll just absolutely lay it on the line. And I mean, racing at him 70.3, um, we've had some great head to heads and he, uh, he just sends it. He sends it so hard. And, uh, I spend the rest of the day trying to catch him. Um, I'm lucky enough in Ironman, maybe he's either a little bit intimidated by the distance still, um, or, you know, he just hasn't quite figured it out yet. But, uh, yeah, for the time being, I'm lucky enough to be there and be able to ride with him. Um, so, yeah, there was definitely, you know, uh, a few words said um, as we rode up. And I guess it was both of us who were just stoked that we were both in that group and uh, both had the ability to, I guess, affect the race in a lot of ways. And, uh, yeah, I think it was pretty pretty mutual. It was... Uh, you do your turn and I'll go front and I'll do my turn and um, yeah, it'll be great. And with that bike course being what it was, I, a lot of the talk leading into the race and during the race was about the bike course and how hilly it was and, and you know, the wall at 120 Ks and and then a 10 K climb, you know, 160 kilometer into the, into the bike ride. During your build up to the race, was that a huge focus for you? Like knowing that the bike course was going to be so hard and hilly, uh, w- w- how much of your focus was on making sure that you were really strong on the bike? 
Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, yeah, I guess my main weakness over the last few years has been on the bike and, um, yeah, I knew this course was going to be really taxing on the bike and quite hard, um, quite challenging and that there'd probably be some big differentials between the Uber bikers and the, you know, the us, the all-round athletes. Um, so we had put a lot of work into it and I think in particular, we had gone out to Cedar City there that two and a half weeks early and we had spent 10 days on the course um, where we did we did all the course uh, a few times over and we did all the key sections a few times over. Um, we took, you know, baseline powers um, for certain efforts, certain heart rates, uh, especially that higher section up when you're at like 1600 meters um, to see what the heart rate and what the lactates were um at certain power efforts and we knew like that wall that wall was five and five and a half minutes um at a certain wattage and it it literally produced a certain amount of lactate and as soon as we went 10 watts higher than that then um yeah we were producing way too much and we had to pull back and heart rate had gone up so um we had done a lot of work on the course and I knew exactly I knew exactly the watts and how I wanted to ride that course um and it was funny that yeah the group actually just kind of fell right into those numbers in a way so uh it worked out perfect and when you guys were riding um at what point did you think oh we're we're gonna come off the the, the bike here with a with a big lead and, and these uber cyclists who you've mentioned you know cam worth and and other guys like sam long and lionel sanders at what point did you realize they weren't going to get you and and that you know this world championships was yours to win on the run um about the 120k mark here at the top of the wall and we got a split um at that point in time that we were yeah i think four and a half minutes up on cam worth uh, and he was the main group um and lionel was another two minutes back on that again so um yeah i actually sat up and gave a big fist pump i was on the front at that point in time and uh yeah and it was pretty i mean we we're pretty stoked at that point in time to know that we had ridden just as strong if not stronger than what those guys had so um i knew we had one last long climb and um obviously if they hadn't been making the time up on the climbs they weren't going to make the time up on the last climb so yeah i knew we, we were going to come off the bike as that group really it is quite funny that that before you mentioned that uh the uber cyclists might put time into you and and, and you were thinking that when you're out there but but in the end, Cameron Worth, who has the fastest bike of the day, only puts about 30 seconds into you. And, and you know, a, a guy like Sam Long and uh, and Lionel Sanders, like you put two minutes into into Sam Long, who who was with Cam Worth for a, bit, a big part of the bike. So do you think that that mainly came down to uh, you guys being stronger than, than you thought you were relative to them? Or as a group, were you just working so well together that it made the bike a bit easier for you guys compared to those guys who were sort of one or two out for most of the day? Maybe it just came down to um, telling the American commentators that, you know, they didn't have to just talk about uh, Sam Long and uh, their pet loves in life. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, it was, uh, I think we just, we rode well. Um, there was never a moment. It wasn't the fact that we rode hard. It was just that there was never a moment where we were trying to jostling for a position or, you know, soft pedaling or anything. Like whoever was on the front was just riding strong and for that just meant that everyone had to ride ride pretty strong and um i think it was just that it was so continuous like we just we just never let up we never 
we never had a moment where um yeah there was any kind of easy peddling and that just added up and made the difference I'm glad you brought it up just to divert the conversation quickly because in the lead up to this race uh, me and Craig Alexander did a a prediction uh, or like a preview and and I was pretty strong on on you being a huge chance. Um, I, I I think like I had you down as my number one person that nobody's talking about who could win the race. And and Crowy definitely agreed. He uh well he definitely agreed. He was really really high on your prospects as well. And then it was so frustrating when I'm watching the world champs. Right, I've, I'm staying up all night. I'm dedicating eight hours of my life to it to have the the whole race be commentated to me by people who literally don't know what they're watching and clearly don't follow the athletes or or you know have have a real understanding of 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 you know who's in form and who's done what over the last few years because um yourself was my biggest frustration uh, and knowing in my own head leading into the race how big a chance you were and and how this course suited you the fact that it was a new zealand summer that you were training in rather than going through that big winter into kona um i, I thought with some of the people who were out of the race you it, it made your your chances are uh, like a quite a bit higher as well and and then you were you were racing so well all day like you swam you had one of the all-time swims your your group was racing at the front of the 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 bike for the whole day and looking really strong um you know you've ran a a 239 at Cairns in a a battle where you beat Javier Gomez one of the best runners in the sport and and back in 2018 I think it was had that that day where you and uh, Tim O'Donnell and Patrick Lang all ran pretty much as, as well as each other with Patrick just getting away in the end like you're a you're one of the world-class Ironman triathletes and you're at the front of the race in a working group that has five minutes at the top of uh, the wall on, on you know, Cam Worth and Sam Long and Lionel Sanders. And it's still being talked about like, you know, these guys are just, just here at the front of the race making the most of their opportunity at the front of the race and not really like you were much of a chance to, to actually win the race. Um, and it was almost like they didn't know what like you, Braden Curry, had achieved in your career. I didn't. I'm pretty sure I did not hear any of your results mentioned once in the race, or like how you're arguably a top three runner in that field. But like, it's not being mentioned that oh, you know, this is a top three runner in the field who is five minutes up off the bike, pretty much. Like, even then, it still felt like it was only a matter of time until someone caught you in their mind. It was it was really frustrating uh, to listen to, and so I'm glad you sort of seem a little bit frustrated by that too <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh i guess it's hard not to be frustrated and and for those other guys that were in the front group you know they're all there's a few you know daniel back he's run some great times and um you know kyle's obviously young and unknown and has spent the whole summer training with yarn and uh if you're gonna run and train with yarn your run's probably gonna get better um so yeah it was i mean it's just ridiculous in my mind it's just pathetic that they can't find commentators that actually know the athletes in the sport and uh up with the times in a way like they're just so far behind um with the athletes and their knowledge of the sport and and it just seems that you know if you're not um prepared to I guess have a big mouth and and make a big uh make a big splash and and talk UFC on the start line or <laughs> you know the days out to the race then um you don't get a word in uh on the race day and uh yeah it's just a, it's funny isn't it it's uh, it's taking that and a little bit of kiwi kind of humbleness uh to a race and yeah not getting um any kind of time because you haven't spoken out pre-race 
Yeah, I can only imagine how frustrating it is for someone like you, but particularly at your age. Like I can understand how maybe Sam or Kyle in that group being a little bit younger, uh, I could I could sort of see how they might, you know, forgive people for not knowing who they are. But to to barely know who you are was mind-blowing to me. I th- I, look, if you're paid to commentate the Ironman World Championships, it's the equivalent of, you know, being paid to commentate the Super Bowl or the Tour de France or whatever it is. Mm. Like... I think you have to be better. You ha- you can't just show up there and and not do any research or not like love the sport and and expect people not to notice that and not to care. Like I know it's eight hours and it's a long time to talk, but I don't think there was ten minutes of good commentary over the eight hours. So nah, I mean there's heaps of excuses, isn't there? And uh, you just think even the whole media package of it. You know, you look at so many key parts in the race that to the viewers would be really exciting and you could talk about those key parts of the race, but they can't even capture those key parts because the people who are putting the show together don't even know what the key parts are. Like they don't even know, you know, there was a moment where Sam Long, I think was, you know, gone to the front of that main group and it looked like he was trying to attack and get away and trying to split that group up. And they changed um, cameras to the, the second female right at that point in time and sat on her for like eight minutes or something. It's like, it's, it's so funny that, you know, there's not someone who's choreographing that content to who knows the sport, who knows the athletes and knows when there's moments that are going to change the race and affect the race. Um, and not just the front, like who, who are going to change the places for second, third, fourth, fifth, the top 10, like they, they can tell stories the whole day through if they actually knew the athletes and knew how they raced. It's uh, it's funny you said that move about Sam Long because I literally didn't really even know it happened because I didn't see it. Um, yeah. and, I, and I watched the whole eight hours. I stayed up from 10 p.m. Australian time till about 6.30 Australian time, a.m. Yeah. Like the whole night, like I give up my whole night and yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know that happened. They flashed to Cameron Worth and Sam Long who were by themselves, whereas last I knew they were with Lionel Sanders and, and Andreas Dreitz and, and that kind of thing. And I, I don't know how they got away or what happened. I, I didn't see it. And like Andreas Dreitz was in that group and had a massive crash and um, has, has like uh, fucked him up himself up pretty bad. Yeah. I don't know what happened there. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it mentioned once on the commentary. And there was so many examples of that that I, I can't even, like I can't even list them all. Um, but I guess the positive is that is even though like there wasn't much shining commentary about your career, even though you were uh, you were at the front of the race. The camera was on you for about six hours of the the eight hour coverage. Yeah, yeah, we definitely got lots of uh, FaceTime. Yeah. FaceTime was uh, was big. Good for felt. Yeah, maybe not verbal time. Yeah, good for felt. Yeah, yeah, good showing for those guys. Obviously, with Daniela on the top of the podium, and then uh, plenty of time on my bike. But um, yeah. No, it was uh, definitely interesting. So just to just one more point on this. You being one of the, the guys who understands the sport as well as anyone, is heavily involved in the sport, um, sees the, the weakness in the coverage of the sport. What are some things you would do to change it? Oh, I mean, it's a hard one with those guys because it's such a tight uh, community that's been around for quite a long time now. Um, and it's hard to to see it changing it's hard it's hard for them to take feedback and it's hard for them to change um so yeah i, I mean in my mind I, I just see it has to be directed by an athlete or someone who's incredibly passionate about the sport who knows the exciting moments and that 
and they need to be watching that broadcast and watching the race and be able to kind of make the story work around, I guess, the top 10 in each male and female and create that momentum and the stories that are happening within the race. Um, and yeah, just to just be able to have someone who's in there that's who knows, I guess, the athletes at this present time. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this, and like I did a uh, like a recap show with Luke McKenzie, and we were talking about it. And I was just, I loved the chat because I'm like, oh, this is this is uh, this is the kind of talk I would want to hear about the race. I wish I had have heard it on the race day. So like Luke mm. McKenzie's over there. Get him in the commentary booth. He he knows the sport. He's a new athlete. Alistair Brownlee pulls out. Gustav Eden pulls out. Why not? Why mm. not get them in and 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 let them chat about the athletes? They they would know a lot more about it than than the comment. Anyway, it's uh, it was yeah. It felt funny like- that some people say that too. Like there, there was a comment saying, "Oh, you know, you never put athletes in the commentary room. They're terrible." But I think one of the best super leagues I ever watched was when Ali Brownlee commentated. Hundred percent. And it was freaking fantastic, mate. He was he was hilarious and. He was just putting himself in those moments of like, oh, there's Gomez and, oh, you know, Gomez will do this and, you know, that's how Gomez races and, oh, and there's Johnny, he's going to go do that and, oh, right, right. And, you know, it was just, it was really, really interesting and he knew exactly when each athlete was going to probably play their cards and whether that card stuck, you know, stuck and it made it exciting. Like you could see that in the race and, yeah, I mean, these guys just don't have that vision. They don't they don't know, you know, each other athlete and, you know, Ali and those guys were sitting around doing nothing. And I'm sure they probably would have jumped in there. Even Reedy, you know, Reedy's someone who knows the sport so well um, and is good on a mic, put him in there and he knows athletes. Um, so yeah, change it up. I reckon. I think what I'm going to do just because uh, I've been thinking about this during the week and, and not to make this about myself, but for, for Kona um, later on in the year, I'm going to get, I think I'm going to try and get like, two or three guys together and, and we'll do like a um what do you call it like we'll do a commentary live on youtube as the race goes on so you'll be able to just yeah. watch the race and then mute their commentary and you can just chuck our commentary on like i'm just going to get some athletes who like i won't even i don't even think i'll play much of a part of it i just want to give people commentary i would want to hear because if i have to, i can't go through another eight hour night like that listening to that commentary so I think we do need to start some change hey, was when, uh, my wife actually just set up a private like messenger group and uh everyone just rolled voice messages and that the whole night and uh i think that was probably some of the funniest uh some of the funniest commentary that was out there um was yeah pretty much uh calling everyone out and how they were going to race and what was going to happen and um yeah it was actually real and it and most of it played out yeah i think um i think i man have a have a lot to a lot to learn. I don't know why they're not asking you athletes about it. But anyway, we'll move on. We could talk about this for probably another two hours, but but we won't. Um, back to the race. So you get off the bike with that lead, and and can you talk to me about what was going through your mind when you when you sort of and when did you realise that you had four and a half minutes on them, and and when did you start getting an idea of who else was in contention and who was running well, and and even in that little group of five you're in, did you? like get off the bike knowing oh, I'm probably the strongest runner in this, in this group over the Ironman distance. And, and just talk to me about everything that was going on in, inside your head uh, off the bike. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I rolled into transition and I felt really good. Actually, I knew uh, I was going to have pretty good run legs. Um, 
So uh, I actually thought, right, I'll do my usual and I'll try and make a move in this. Um, so I grabbed my transition bag, ran to the end of the tent, got changed. I uh, thought I'd drop my bag and head out and be on run course as fast as I could. And uh, I did that. And then I went to drop my gear bag and the marshal said, oh, no, you got to hang it back on your hook. So I ran back another, you know, probably 200 metres down the change tent, through the change tent, hooked it back on my hook and then came out just kind of behind all the guys. Um, yeah, I, I settled into a pace and I tried to like, I tried to control it as much as I could, but I also knew that there was going to be some people running behind me that were going to be prepared to run a very uncontrolled race and, and see what happens. And yeah, I started off, uh, it was quite, it's quite a challenging course to pace. Um, you sort of crawling up one side of the one side of the hill when it's it's sort of 350 four minute k pace and then you're running down the other side it's 315 320 pace and it, it's just really hard to judge exactly what you know where you should be shooting for so um i did what i could i knew yeah after the first turnaround um down the far end of the course i had a good idea of where everyone was sitting um i knew christian was still four minutes behind me um I had a friend on the course who told me that I was still running I was running uh faster than everyone other than Christian so yeah Christian was the fastest person on course at that point of time um yeah I I just tried to I tried to run strong but I didn't try and run the hills too strong um and then I got through the first 21k I think in about an hour 16 or something and it's probably a bit quicker than I thought I was going. Um, I was sort of thinking it would have been more like a seven and eighteen. Um, but I knew that, yeah, I knew that it was going to hurt later on. Um, so yeah, I just, I mean, I just kept pushing. I still felt really controlled. I still felt like I was running really well. Um, and I, I still don't really know how Christian took to that much time out of me. Um, over that next 8k because I kind of went through the 21 and then yeah by the time we're by the 28 30k um he had caught me up and uh he was still just absolutely flying really and at that point of time I didn't feel like I had slowed up um and it was only after that that I really started hitting a wall kind of on that 5k of gradual uphill on the way back um so yeah, I I don't actually know how I could have raced it uh, much better other than probably trained a little bit better for the hills um, for the run. And I yeah, I don't actually know tactically if I could have tried to race it any better. I guess I was, I was hoping that if I ran strong for that 30K that Christian would blow up um, in the case of trying to catch me. And I was also thinking that if I ran a 242, 244, that Christian wouldn't catch me um because he'd have to run a, a 238 uh which he ended up doing so yeah I, I don't really know how I would have beaten him there um but yeah the the Lionel thing was definitely a uh a bit of a dagger in the back um I would have loved to have uh beaten Lionel to that line and it's probably the one that I would look back on and will regret probably not sinking myself even further further um but yeah at the the time and the place um I was I was pretty beat up and uh definitely wasn't up for a fight when he caught me there's so much I want to dig into there because uh that that's fascinating so I've watched you race like 
for years now and I've followed your career quite closely being an Australian um, and you being one of the more dominant Asia-Pacific uh, long, long course triathletes of my time. Um, and I would say one, one word I would use to describe you is tough or, or like gritty. And when I was doing my commentary of the race, they were the words I, I kept using for you. You've always been someone who just races so tough. I don't think you get beaten mentally in races really ever. Not, not when it comes to, you know, uh, like take Kyle Smith, for example. There's so many times off the, off the bike where I've thought, oh, that's a big, that's a big gap in a 70.3 that Kyle's got on you and he'll run 119 or 118 or have a, have a good run. And, and you just find a way, you just like, you almost just kill yourself to win those, those races, um, that people probably have never even watched. Um, so that's what I, I, I think the big thing I was thinking in that last 5k was Lionel's running faster, but I know how badly Braden will, will hurt himself to, to get second here. Um, so it's really like surprising to hear you say that, that you thought you could have gone a little bit deeper on reflection and that maybe at that point of the race, you just, you just didn't have it in you to do that. And maybe cause you've been fighting all day and you, you just didn't have anything left to give. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think people just say I'm tough and gritty because I make it probably look harder than a, than most do. Um, so maybe it's just my facial expressions uh, that make me look like I'm hurting more, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, just a moment where uh, I kind of felt like I was beat in a way and um, it kind of snuck up on me. I was, sort of, I was still two minutes up with about, you know, 4K to go or something, 5K to go, and it was mostly downhill. And I sort of, I thought realistically if I ran 345 down this hill, there's there's no way he was going to catch me. Um, so I, I was in a bit of disbelief actually when he, when he was only 50 meters behind me. Um, so yeah, by that time, uh, it wasn't a whole lot of response, uh, to the fight, but I think maybe if he even caught me earlier on, like on the uphill on the backside, then maybe I would have gone with him and started settling into that pace again and, and found another gear. But yeah, when he, when he caught me, it was a bit of a surprise. And then, and there was only 200 meters to go. And something else you said there was that, uh, you you don't really know how Christian caught you, uh, and it sort of like you know blows your mind a little bit that ha- that happened. Uh, and something else I said during the commentary was that when he did catch you, he didn't catch you like you often see in Ironman World Championships races when the the, the person uh, catches the guy who's been in front all day because the guy in front blows up. You hadn't blown up. At the point he caught you, you were second, maybe third fastest on the course. You know, like you were you were on, on track at that point for like a 242 marathon, uh, 244 marathon. And and. It sort of, it, it was crazy how much time he put into you in that in that first twenty five k's. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. I I, I don't know. I maybe I, I got to look closer at the timing splits, but um, yeah, it was phenomenal. It was ridiculous. As you said, I was still on track at that point in time. Like some people, I heard a podcast. I'll try mockery and Skippy uh, was talking about how um something about how I got the chimp on the back or something and got overly excited. Um, but I was actually dead on target. Like I, I was actually spot on what I was trying to shoot for, like a 242. Um, and I was running really well. So when he caught me, uh, I, I really hadn't slowed up that much, um, from what I went out at. And, uh, yeah, it was probably, yeah, again, not till the last sort of five or six K that I, I really did start suffering and slowing down. But when he caught me, um, I was still, 
was, yeah, I still did on target. And he went around you fast too. Like he put in a huge effort when he went around you and then it just didn't even really look like he paid for it. I was, yeah, that whole little like section in, in the 5K before he caught you to the 5K after he caught you, I still don't, I still don't understand what happened there. <laughs> no, it's like he took a shortcut. Literally. All of a sudden he was just there and he had taken two minutes out of me uh, over 5K or something. And then, um, yeah, and then again he was gone. Um, and I, I did, I, I kind of still hung. I came, we went down and around the far turnaround and then back up and there was another out and back. And at that point in the time, he was still only two, 300 metres in front of me. And I was like, well, there's a big chance here that this guy does detonate. Like there's a big chance that he absolutely blows up for what he's just done. Like he's just run four minutes out of me. Um, but he didn't, he just kept, he just kept charging. And then um, you, you talked about the, the battle with Lionel. What was that like crossing the line? It was, it was like a watching it. I don't know whether it was just sleep, sleep deprivation, but uh, it was a really emotional sort of little patch with you and Lionel crossing the line. Like Lionel was crying and, and he would have been full of, God, who knows what emotions he was feeling. And, and you sort of had this look on your face that like, A, I, I think you were completely like exhausted. And so uh, it, it was, it, you, you probably were struggling to, to, uh, to know what you were feeling at the time, but I couldn't get a read on whether it was like disappointment, frustration, whether you were happy. It was, it was a really weird emotional moment for, for both of you. How, how were you actually feeling when you crossed the line? Um, I think I was actually feeling pretty unemotional. <laughs> like I actually, I wasn't that like affected by it. Um, like I was, I was shattered. Like I was definitely, right up there with us as deep as uh as deep as i've been in the ironman in a lot of ways uh, or as cooked as, as i've been in the ironman so yeah there wasn't a whole lot left in the tank and i mean i i look back and i mean i'm stoked i'm stoked with the result and i'm stoked with how i raced um and that i got to be at the front of a you know a world champs race and, and race it hard and um yeah i'm really proud of that like it, it's a great result um and i'm not yeah, I'm not really, I'm not that disappointed with the result, uh, with the finishing spot, you know, I'm still happy, um, with that. And it was a huge step forward. So yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was a really strange environment to walk into like, yeah, Lionel was crying and I guess the crowd were all cheering him on and I was crawling my way over the line. And uh, I mean, I was lucky enough, Sally, my wife, she wasn't actually going to come, uh, over to the States for this race, but sort of last minute decided that um that she would come and yeah it was pretty I guess just fortunate to have her there um because yeah it was it was definitely a pretty uh intense situation for a minute there it was really funny actually watching you uh hug your wife Sally after the race because you were so exhausted like it was just like you couldn't even hug your wife who was there after the race she was hugging <laughs> you and you're just like you just like fell into her and you couldn't even I was there yeah, that actually made me laugh watching that really but like <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah i was pretty toasted i remember it even like i just couldn't i couldn't bend my knees to like lean down i was yeah. just like half, half stapled <laughs> over and away i was like i'd actually rather just be yeah, bent over completely right now but uh, i'll give you a hug it looked more like she was hugging you like to keep you standing when you were like really yeah. drunk or something not like you know <laughs> yeah. what i mean <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time but yeah. um well i'm surprised you weren't after sm- smashing that beer on the uh on the podium after the race 
Well, I only found out afterwards it was alcohol-free. It tasted pretty good. Was it alcohol-free? Yeah, apparently. The Athletics Brewing Co. Uh, So triathlete. I guess something else I want to talk about about the race before we just dig into the prep a little bit was um, that the the people who weren't there. So with Gustav Eden going going down a, a couple of days before the race and Alistair Brownlee, um, d- the same thing, and then, and then Jan Fredino not being there, were you thinking about that at all? And, and were you thinking like and talking to people uh, in the lead up to the race about dynamics and how it might play out and what you might do and, and you know, those late withdrawals of particularly Gustav and, and Alistair who would have definitely, you know, played a little role in how the race played out. Did Were you thinking about that at all or was it just – was your head just not even there? Um, no, nah, I'm definitely one who thrives off competition and other athletes. So I'm always aware of what – other athletes are, are doing and what my competition is going to be doing. So, yeah, I mean, a, a bit of a spread in a lot of ways. Like um, it would have been, you know, yarn would have been a big factor in that race. Obviously, he was swam and rode and, um, yeah, run very similar. It would have been interesting to see if he could stay away. Gustav would have been – he would have been interesting to race again. You know, the plan was that he hopefully wouldn't make that swim. If Christian didn't make it, then he probably wouldn't have made it. And then – you know, would have he ridden with Lionel in that and got back into the race? I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, who knows? He would have had to run like Christian, I guess, to yeah, really get back into it. Um, Brownlee was a really interesting one. I, I find him, he's, he's really, uh, he's just such an aggressive racer and it's really cool and it works incredibly well with short course. Um, but I don't think he's worked out how to race long course at, uh, a world champs level like he can do it when he races solo but i think sometimes the competition potentially will get the better of him um and he tries to break everyone and just ends up breaking himself or, or and probably breaks everyone at the same time um so yeah i was, I was as i said before i was quietly happy he wasn't in that front group uh and riding with us because it probably would have changed that race uh completely um but yeah, it is. It is. You look at it in two different lights. It's like, well, it, maybe I could have pushed some run sessions harder, or I could have pushed my training harder. Um, but maybe I would have got sick, and maybe I would have got injured. So, as always, the saying, you've got to be on the start line to compete. And sometimes getting to the start line is the hardest part. And speaking of that, let's go into your training in the lead up. Um, how was the? How was your training going into the race, and and like how long a block had you had you done that was sort of specifically targeted around the race? Um, yeah, so I did I did the coast to coast in New Zealand. What was that like mid uh, mid Feb or something? And then I took a two week break after that, and uh, then it was pretty much just building straight on. So that was like yeah, twelve weeks or something, ten weeks, um, and it was pretty good. It's just. You know, it's really it is really hard when you're training by yourself uh, here in New Zealand and down south. It's it's definitely hard to gauge what kind of form you're in, and it's hard to get pushed in sessions. Like every session I do is by myself, um, which I I think is actually really good. It's really healthy if you're an athlete who can tolerate that training by themselves. Um, but it's hard to compare how you know, how fit you are um, when you're just always training by yourself and you haven't got any racing. So, yeah, um, I didn't really know going into the race what, you know, how what form I was in and whether my bike had sort of moved from um, where I was hoping it would have. Um, but, yeah, I think other than that, 
I was injury free. I stayed healthy. I didn't get COVID. I had a, a really good training block at altitude and uh, yeah, things were going pretty well for me. In that lead up, did you spend any time over in Noosa? Because I know you, you train in Noosa a lot uh, and, and there's obviously a few good athletes who train there, but things being a little bit weird with, you know, a lot of those guys being international and, and not coming over because of COVID. Did you, did you spend any time here in Australia in the lead up? Uh, not this one. Um, obviously, we, we're going to head over there in another few weeks and uh, we'll be there for winter, really. And that works really well for us. Um, but yeah, no, this one was just all based at home in Wanaka. And uh, it, was, it was good. I think for me now these days with two kids that are a bit older, um, it's it's pretty nice just to keep it pretty simple and not be living out of suitcases all the time. Um, so yeah, a good block here. Um, and consistent training seems to work. And, and something else that I wanted to touch on is that uh, you're a you're a JR Swim Squad member, uh, and and something again I mentioned in my commentary, uh, knowing that like uh, you'd been swimming with him and for for years now, and 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 being through the sessions that he puts guys through. Uh, for people who, who don't know, we've talked about him on the podcast before. Though um, JR is a famous uh, swim coach uh, who who uh, you know coaches out of the the Noosa Aquatic Centre up there. How how big a, a part did he play in your swimming getting to the level it is now where you're a front front pack swim swimmer out of uh, the Ironman World Championships? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously a big part in a lot of ways. Um, I guess probably what I, I taught myself how to swim when I was 24, 25. Um, until that point, yeah, I probably couldn't even get through a couple hundred metres Uh to start and then I yeah I slowly progressed through what was my I guess Xterra career where I raced Xterra Worlds I don't know three or four years in a row um, and just chased Xterra around the world um, and then I started doing a block in Noosa every year as soon as I started racing Ironman and that's uh, when uh, I remember the first season I was there I was pretty intimidated by JR and the whole squad and I, I didn't train with them and I kind of regretted it. Um, so the next time I went back, uh, it was the first thing I did. I, I went and signed up and jumped in. And uh, yeah, by that time I had won Ken's a couple of times and um, he tends to be the guy who picks his favorites. He, uh, he likes to look after you when he knows you, you work hard and you're prepared to work hard. And um, he definitely, he looks after me in a big way, which is pretty cool. But um, yeah, just that just swimming with those guys it's no matter what if you swim with those guys you're going to get better i uh, i spent a bit of time up in noosa training back in the day when i was a young fella and the first session i went to with the jr swim squad was i think it was it was 16 or 18 400s on a pace Mm. cycle that i was no chance to keep up with with like big names (laughs) all around you and jr just doesn't like he uh he just has this personality where like you sort of just intimidated. I was at least as, as a younger kid, just like intimidated. And like I was swimming on fear in those swim sessions. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of swimming on fear. Um, he does it in an incredibly humbling way. Um, but he, he keeps you on the button and he's, he's inspiring in his own way. So you can't really, you, you just like, you are so inspired by him. Um, because he's just so strong and committed and he's what 86 or something now and he's yeah. still sitting poolside morning and night and 
you know, you'll throw stupid comments in there. And um, I didn't come off my deathbed to watch you swim like shit, Curry. <laughs> Bredo, Bredo, come here, come here. And he'll grab your arm and pull you close because he can barely hear. And um, But still got an incredible brain on him too. Like he'll be like, oh, you were swimming 108 pace, on hundreds last year. You know, I think, you know, we need to get them down a little bit. It's good, but it's not quite good enough um so he just keeps he keeps going on you and he keeps working on you um some people obviously yeah find it hard because he he does push it so hard um but if you're prepared to yeah step back and say look i can only do three sessions a week with you jr otherwise i'll be dead um then it seems to work pretty well for me yeah he's got that sort of brutal old-fashioned i've i've been through a few world wars and I've had some shit yeah. going on my life about him, doesn't he? It, uh, you're right. You've just summed him up perfectly. <laughs> it was really funny to listen to. I haven't thought about him for a while, so, yeah, that takes me back. Um, and, and then you said you went to altitude and and that you were training mainly by yourself in, in New Zealand. Um, so at any point throughout the, the 10 to 12-week block, were you training with anyone or were you and your, your coach um, just working together and, and you just had your own plan and, and, and you stuck to it? Um, no, I mean, 90% of it was by myself and then, um, Matt Kerr actually, who does spend a bit, a fair bit of time over your way on the Gold Coast and, uh, is a Kiwi athlete and he won, uh, the age group world champs, uh, the other week. Um, he, yeah, he's done a few training blocks with me. So he came down South and did a week, uh, in Wanaka here. And then he came with me over to Cedar city and did two weeks, uh, training the altitude pre the race. Um, and also my coach, uh, from Germany came and met us in Cedar city and did two weeks training there too. Uh, speaking of Matt Kerr there quickly, um, I think something that speaks to how good Daniela Reef's performance was more than anything is that she beat every single age group man across the line. Uh, which is like, I know people would hear that. And, I didn't know that. I'll have to tell Matt when I see him tomorrow. Yeah, she, yeah. she beat Matt by a minute, uh, which is like crazy. People would think, yeah, but she's a professional. Like, But there is a big difference between men and men and women uh, in endurance events. So for Daniela to – and like these like good age group guys at World Championships, like, you know, Matt Kerr who, who won it, um, they're, they're basically full-time triathletes to a – like to an extent, aren't they? They they sort of they take it as seriously as as most pros, and they they put almost just as, as much time into it. Um, and, and so it is a massive deal for her to uh to yeah to beat every every single age group man who's on the on the on the race. <laughs> well, I can tell you what I, I went out in Vegas afterwards with um with Cam Worth, and he was telling me he wasn't feeling that great on the bike, and he saw our helicopter uh, way off up the valley. Uh, on the second loop and then uh, next minute he heard the second helicopter coming down the steep descent and probably not that far behind him and he was uh, he was ready to dive in a cactus bush and get the fuck out of the way because <laughs> Daniela Reese was coming through so uh, she is absolutely phenomenal and it was, it was really cool to see her back um, racing that strong and being that, that dominant in the race yeah. Speaking of like that conversation you had with Cam Worth, after the race, um, like how many of the, the guys that you raced against would you have like a good conversation with about about things that happened inside the race that, that we would never see or hear about? Um, oh, getting more and more these days, and I think that's probably full credit to the PTO. Um, I think from when I started racing, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the athletes, you know, you turn up to a race four or five days out, you see them around the pool, it's all a bit like you're just 
stealthing each other out because you're getting ready to do battle against each other. Um, where the PTO and um, the Collins Cup was uh, definitely an event where, you know, we're only racing to other people out of the, the 40 or 50 that were there. And uh, the rest of the time we were sitting in cafes and talking shit and going and doing random stuff uh, all together. And it, it did actually bring the whole, I guess, professional side of it together um for me anyway and uh so yeah definitely now these days um at the events um afterwards there's some good banter and some good catch-ups was there anything someone said to you about the race that you sort of found interesting um i mean just the obvious is really like the the lionel sanders sitting up on the group not going with that group but then ended up riding back on you know um throughout um oh there's probably just some you know some good random banter about christian that you probably wouldn't want to put out on public media too much but oh um, geez i want you to yeah. put it out <laughs> no, no it's not my place to to uh talk but always some good laughs mostly about the size of the human like <laughs> how chubby how someone who can be you know probably 20 percent body fat can uh run that fast um is phenomenal so yeah, no, it's uh, definitely some good laughs. There's this really like controversial Australian YouTuber. He's actually quite funny. Like he he makes a lot of people angry. His name's Durian Ryder. And I saw, I don't know how it popped up on my YouTube feed, but he, he posted a photo and he always is like, you know, giving people shit about their weight. He's a vegan who um, is really strong on vegan being the only way. And if, if you want to be, you know, uh, at the top of elite sport, you have to be super skinny. That's his, that's his shtick. Um, yeah. and he believes in it really, really hardcore. And he posted a photo of Christian Blumenfeld and was like, even at the top, even at the top of uh, sport, like the uh, triathlon Olympic gold medalist could still lose 10 kilos. And if he was, if he was under my program, he would be even faster. <laughs> and Christian, Christian commented on it and said, and said, yeah, but if I lost 10 kilos, I wouldn't be as good as I am, which is like pretty fascinating. It's incredible, isn't it? And I think it's really good for the sport in a lot of ways because you've seen the yarn Fredinos come through that look like matchsticks when they go into a world champs. And, you know, sometimes yarn's on the start line. He's he's lighter than I am and about a foot and a half taller. Um, but, yeah, and then you see Christian come through and, yeah, it's just that. He's just got so much power and so much strength and he's obviously just got a huge VO2 and, uh can just keep charging. So, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's probably good. It, it means that not every, every Ironman athlete has to be anorexic and fast and, and go through massive periods of starvation to be an athlete. Um, Cause I think it's incredibly unhealthy where he's probably very healthy and can tolerate the training because uh, he carries a few extra kilos. Speaking of that, how, how, like how, bigger focus do you put on your own diet and, and and your own body shape and like are you really conscious of it do you think about it or or are you sort of um more in the christian camp where you're you're just there to get the most out of yourself and you, you don't really starve yourself much and and do all that other that other crazy shit that triathletes do um a bit of a bit of both really. well i've gone both ways to be honest it's um yeah I, you know four or five years ago when i was lining up to kona i was probably about four kilos lighter than i am right now it's like 65 kegs and uh you know i fasted i'd do five hour rides without eating to you know i'd be keto just only high fat low carb um yeah i went 100 percent, and uh you know and before 
Kona, I'd be just trying to lose those last two kilos. I'd be doing my saunas all the time, trying to sweat it out, whatever I could do. And uh, I actually, I had a bit of a kind of scare maybe a couple of years ago, well, just when COVID started, where I had a stress fracture. Well, I thought I had a stress fracture. I went and got it all checked out and found out that I had a horrifically poor bone density um, and was definitely heading down a path of reds um, in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I think it was a bit of a slap in the face for me. And and now I literally eat anything, anywhere. Um, don't don't really care. Uh, you know, if I feel like uh, having a hamburger, I'll have a burger. If I feel like having two, I'll have two. Um, and to be honest, it's probably meant that I've put on, you know, I've probably put on maybe a kilo, maybe two kilos more. Um, but I'd say I'm a lot healthier and a lot more resilient from it. So yeah, these days, um, not quite as far as Christian, I'm not prepared to probably carry that much, but, um, definitely a lot more relaxed than I used to be. I think there's like a good message in that, isn't there? That like people can learn from, from your experience as a pro triathlete. And, and I know another New Zealander we had on Hannah Wells said pretty much exactly what you've just said. Um, and when you, when you shift your focus to, you know, uh, being healthy and happy and, and performance rather than being skinny and, and thinking that being uh, as skinny as possible is, is what will get you as fast as possible, realizing that there's a little bit of a middle ground there that, that at the end of the day will probably make you faster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got to, it's just, we just look at what we do as Ironman athletes or endurance athletes and the amount of calories we, we um, burn is just ridiculous. Like there's just no way that you could actually probably even eat that many calories um, continuously and keep up, you know, the training volume. So yeah, whatever it takes uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, if it, it means that you can have to kind of overeat here and there to try and keep some condition on um, or, you know, and you're off a couple of weeks of training, then you let let it all go. Uh, I think it's, it's good for the body. It's good for the hormones. It's good for the health. Um, it's good for the mental health. So, yeah, if you can tolerate it, it's great. And just to circle really quickly back to your training, how much volume were you doing per week in that in that twelve or ten to twelve week block leading into the world champs? Are you a big volume guy, or are you more a quality over quantity kind of guy? Um, I'm quality over quantity. Yeah, I don't do big volume. Um, I don't believe in it. I don't see. You know, maybe it is why I blew up in that last five k, but. I'm not, I don't even see the distance of an Ironman being hard. Like it's not like it's a tough distance. Like I could you get off the couch tomorrow and do an Ironman. It's yeah, I could do it in 12 hours. I could do it in 10 hours. Um, I don't, I don't look at it as that way as being like, I've just, I've got to, you know, do all this training so I can finish an Ironman. I do it, you know, I do it so I can get as fast as I can to be able to do an Ironman as fast as I can. And, I don't think just doing huge volume makes you fast. I think there's a very fine balance between having enough endurance to get through an Ironman, but still having the speed and the power and the freshness to actually be able to go faster than an Ironman. And then just like to, to shift focus to the, the rest of the year a little bit, is Kona now the plan for you after, after your performance on the weekend? Um, I was got to see how I pull up probably in the next few days. Um, I'm still really tempted. It just, uh, you know what racing professionally like it's, uh, um, money's always a, 
part of life um, and making money in the sport is what we do. So, yeah, paying some bills. And um, I really like racing Ironman Cairns. It's one of probably my favourite races in the world. Um, I actually like Cairns. Like, it's kind of like I always go out there two weeks early and train up there, and I quite like the environment. So, um, yeah, still, still, uh, I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to get my head around if I'm ready to pack my bag again next week and head to Cairns and start training for um, Asia Pacific champs, or if I am going to take a bit more of a break and then start the build for Kona. Yeah, believe me, I do understand what it's like being a broke triathlete. I was like 22 and a pro triathlete, and I think I had about negative $4,000 in my bank account. And, uh, it was not a fun time. So it's, uh, it is funny when you hear that, that guys still at the top of the sport, like you're one of the best in the world, still have to think about that and, and consider racing that, that close after you've just come third at the, the Ironman World Championships. Um, and it makes me think about a point Crowey brought up, brought up to me in our uh, Ironman World Champs preview show of – how many guys now will actually make it to Kona versus how many will be just completely burnt out by that time of the year, given that we have the world championships at the start of the year and, and the whole PTO circuit through the middle of the year and, and some big championship races in between as well. Um, so that, yeah, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually interested to see how that does play out. Yeah. It's a big calendar really. Um, if you want to jump in there and do everything and, um yeah i mean i I look at it and if i do these ironmans then that means i've done three ironmans in 18 months in a lot of ways so it's not like it's yeah it's not like it's a huge schedule um three ironmans 18 months two two maybe three halves and a coast to coast um so uh, yeah it's it is still pretty pretty normal like i normally do do three ironmans in a year um so missing ironman new zealand was um probably part of that decision to still probably go race cans in a few weeks um so yeah we'll see we'll see what happens but i think i'll be there we would love to see you there i'm actually probably going to go up there and so you being there would be awesome because you would make that race a lot funner to watch i think um particularly given i still don't reckon many people are going to come from overseas to to race cans are they i don't know i haven't even looked at the start list to be honest um i think yeah, obviously I know Apo's racing and that's awesome and excited to see him because it's his first time, I think, really giving an Ironman 100%. looks like he's been training hard and consistent and um, it'll be interesting to see um, how he goes. So, uh, yeah, I don't know other than that what the field will be like, um, but uh, it's always a good race. I reckon uh, Tim Van Berkel's the, in, in the best form he's ever been in in his whole career right now. So I reckon he's... He's the one for you to worry about in Cairns. Um, he's coming in hot. Yeah, yeah. I actually reckon. I actually reckon Burks is. Yeah, I reckon he's in career best form. Yeah, it was awesome to see uh, him take Port Mac. I really was uh, stoked for him for that. He's. Uh, yeah, it's obviously been a tough break through COVID for him, and um, yeah, it's always good when you see someone stick it out for three or four years and then and then get a big win. Um, and yeah, lifts kind of the weight off their shoulders. So yeah, I have no doubt that Burks uh, will be in great form and uh, will will put on a hell of a race. Um, so I have to be pretty prepared to to do battle if I turn up. Sure. Hey, uh, I reckon we'll wrap it up there, Braden. But like seriously, I can't thank you enough for coming on a week after that race that you put on and. And I'm I'm almost I almost want to apologise on behalf of the sport for you not getting more recognition on the day for how insane your performance was. Like, I, <laughs> uh, you made that race in my opinion. You and that that front group, but 
you know, I, you spent a lot of time on the front of that bike and you animated that race on the run and you're just, you're, you, you are so much better than you get credit for, um, in, in the sport of, of Ironman triathlon. And, and so, yeah, stoked to have you on. Can't, can't thank you enough. Uh, one of my favorite athletes. And, and I think there's still even bigger things to come in your future, which is crazy to say with, with what you've achieved so far. So I can't wait to watch it. And, and if you do come to Cairns, I'm, I'm really excited to watch that. So yeah, thanks, Braden. Cool. Yeah, cheers, mate. It's uh, good to be on and good to listen. And uh, yeah, we'll hopefully see you up in Cairns. Have a good day, mate. Sweet. Cheers, bro. See you, bro. Bye.